Pushkin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Today we have part two of Rick Rubin's conversation with proto-punk icon Iggy Pop. If you didn't catch part one last week where Iggy talked about his early days with the Stooges and the inspiration behind some of their most seminal songs, be sure to go check that out. On today's episode, you'll hear Iggy speak in-depth about the years he spent working and touring with David Bowie. He also explains how James Brown inspired his legendary performance style and then recalls the ridiculous antics that led to him bleeding on stage for the very first time. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin with Iggy Pop. Why do you think the Stooges got popular over time? You know, there are probably a lot of good, uh, other good reasons that have to do with the work. But one thing might be this. It occurs to me, when something isn't pushed at you, the listener is allowed to find it for themselves. And something you found for yourself and you like, or your friend told you about it, maybe that has a lot more of a power, staying power, than something that, this is a five-star review, <laughs> you know, or, or this is what's happening now, or this is what you can hear on the radio, whether you like it or not. Is it good enough? It better be, because you're not going to hear anything else. All that sort of thing. It gets a quick result, but maybe it also kind of spoils something. So that might be one reason. And uh, the other reason I would just say is that the, the stuff has a good groove. It's the groove, I would say, and, and not too pushy. Probably those reasons, and maybe also that it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more fringe, and uh, maybe for some reason, in the new world, there's a larger space for fringe, 
for what used to be fringe. Mm-hmm. Everybody's the same size on the internet. But when uh, when when I used to go to record stores, to especially the chains, to buy something, some people would be a card. You walk in, there's a cardboard cutout of the artist, eight feet high, <laughs> and some other artist. You have to go to the back of the store and look through the stacks to find their stuff. So there's there used to be uh, more obvious differences, I would say, and we still have that. We still have some artists that do a lot of uh, numbers, you know, and others that don't. But for some reason, it seemed to be uh, ahead of its time. That's the old saw, I guess, but something about that, I, I don't know exactly. Could be. Maybe the world just caught up. Yeah, something, yeah, yeah society mm. kind of came halfway. and So we know so many artists have been inspired by your on-stage performance. Mm. Artists I've worked with, many artists, mm-hmm. have, have been inspired by you. Who were the artists that inspired you to do what you do in terms mm. of the visual aspect of performance? James Brown, yeah, number one, first, first and foremost. And then I'm um, trying to think, uh, I mean, both Jim Morrison and Mick Jagger, when I started, those were two people that, would be wise to study, check out what they do, you know. Um, although at the time, Mick Jagger didn't do anything really particularly strange at first. There wasn't a pushy performance when I first saw them. That was 1965. Uh, I was. They played Cobble Hall. I was still in uh, in high school. And uh, it was Brian Jones was still in the band, and they just lined up in a row and uh, played, and there was, they all looked amazing, frankly, and uh, all looked really good. And Mick Jagger had a had a very large head, and uh, the movement comes from the head, really. But that was that. It was just a great visual. And when I saw them again in '69. Then that was the tour with the, he wore the Leo sign, the black outfit and the American cardboard hat and all that. And that was full performance, which was, I could see a little bit of Tina Turner. Mm -hmm. I could see a little bit of, uh, well, quite a bit of Tina Turner and then some stuff of his own. Jim Morrison, that was a whole other ball game. This guy had benefited, I think, from, he had a good quality college education in the UCLA film school so he was he was a film major there and uh, so he's singing he's singing things about you know with the, where the lyric is taken from uh, French uh, novelists 200 years ago it was from Celine at end of the night and this sort of thing and uh he was doing he was doing some movements that I'm sure he got straight off uh, the side of a Grecian urn, mm. you know, like and trying to trying to explore uh, the the idea of theatrical badness, a la Antonin Artaud, that kind of thing. So um, that was interesting. But but with both these guys at the time, you're you're young, you're starting out. These were the two poles of what was interesting in in white rock and what they both did well 
they centered well. That's the main thing to her a vocalist. You know, I ran into you at um Nine Inch Nails show in the forum, mm-hmm. and we were sitting at the mixing desk, and I'd never seen him work, and he just came right out at Mike, and he centered. And when, when somebody centers well, they, they don't even have to move. You know, that whole energy comes into them, back to the band, out through them, and uh, it acts like some sort of battery or something. So that was that's what I got out of them. And with James Brown, it's sure it's amazing to watch what he's doing and everything. But what's really behind it, what makes it click, from the moment he's getting ready, even before he steps out there, until he's gone from your sight, the concentration never ebbs. He never goes down to 90% while he reaches for a glass of water or anything. Oh, no, no, no. 100% at all time. Uh, it's a concentration. Uh, it resembles paranoia. Yeah. It's really, yeah. It's, he's really there, you know. And I used to love it. His, <laughs> in his, uh, his, one of his autobiographies, he would tell about uh, backstage he would have a hairdresser because he wouldn't leave the backstage until his hair was perfectly quaffed again and no one could see him that way. And yeah. uh, he told the story once about how the, when they got, the band got to the point where he had a Cadillac, but they didn't have AC in it, and, or it was broken or something. And at some point, they... <laughs> They had to travel down the road with all the windows up, dying of asphyxiation, so everybody would think they had the AC, you know. And he tells <laughs> another amazing. time about, yes, he tells it about another time when the same car broke down. And he said, yeah, so I made the band get out and crouch down and push it, but so nobody would see. <laughs> Jump in. You know, all stuff like that, you know. Very, very full, full on. You know, he has a Christmas song, one of his great Christmas songs. uh, And he gets to the end of, you know, some some homilies about Christmas and and everything. And then he goes, and be sure to come to my Christmas show. You know, he (laughs) says, sell that Christmas show and buy the Christmas record. You know, yeah, he's working it, you know. Did you ever get to see the Doors live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the big push. I, I saw them twice live, and the, and the first one was what pushed me into uh, getting on stage with the Stooges. I'd been trying to form the band, and we were living together and trying to get ideas for what we might do. And uh, the Doors, after their first album, came to the University of Michigan to play a homecoming dance in a basketball arena. Not even an arena like we have now, just a basketball place with some bleachers. Sort of like the scene in the Nirvana video, right? Okay, like that. And uh, there was just a little stage, you know, 18 inches high or something. They had uh, Jordan Boss amps and a column speakers instead of a PA. They did not have enough equipment to reach the room. And uh, they didn't know about that sort of thing yet. They were a weekend band coming out and playing on, on the weekends and then going back to L.A., but they had a, this big hit record. And uh, the band came kind of 
sauntered out without Morrison and started up the uh, the riff to Soul Kitchen, it didn't really sound right because it just wasn't amplified in a way that you could grasp it. It was all right, I guess. And then he came out dressed in black vinyl, head to toe, with a ruffled shirt. His hair was oiled and curled and down past his nipples. And his eyes were like saucers. He was obviously on a lot of probably LSD. Could have been psilocybin. And he sort of did this thing like Tina Turner might do or something like Mick Jagger might do where you, the arms go up like a chicken, but his was a more drunken version and he didn't sing. He just, and the guys at this thing are like, you know, they're frat guys with their dates and they're starting to think, what is this shit? <laughs> you know, and they're getting pissed off. And then when he started to finally sing, he sang Soul Kitchen in a falsetto. The clock says it's time. Yeah, in a falsetto. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then they started getting really bad. And uh, you put, you know, do things like you do if you're if you're drunk. He put his arm around Robbie Krieger's. This is my man. This is my man. Look at him play some blues. You know, it's like, like a bad oh, drunk that was about oh to get 86 from a bar. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So the, I was just fascinated. Yeah. You know, and I loved it. And I said, wow, you know, this guy is, this is quite a spectacle that he's getting away with this. And, uh, and the, the gig was, they got through it a very short program and left basically and they were kind of lucky not to get their butts kicked yeah it was a crew cut time still for most people then so i i thought well boy i could do that <laughs> well yes exactly i could do that yeah the old i, I could, could do ali- that i could alienate yeah, people as I much as this guy yeah. <laughs> they hate yeah. him. I can I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly. So funny. What was the second time you saw them like? Ah, uh, that was different. They played uh Cobo Hall in Detroit. Uh it was either on their second or third album. It had a full house and a large, you know, typical arena stage and beautifully amplified everything really well separated and produced and he sounded great and they just went through their stuff and it sounded good but he still took the effort to try to do something a little different so at one time he sort of jumped off the stage and ran again kind of uh, in a pre-Raphaelite way (laughs) up the whole center aisle of the arena to the back and then ran all the way back during an instrumental part. And then uh, later, after the show, Dave, uh, all the Stooges went, Dave, the bass player, said to me, yeah, I was walking, I was walking to the men's room. There's Jim Morrison walking around, you know, outside in the corridor. And he said, hi, you know, so he, he was like that. He had this concept, you know, he had this one lyric, um, American boy, American girl, most beautiful people in the world. That was a nice, nice sentiment, you know? So I think he had this, uh, I think he wanted to be a kid. And he would say, they, te- they teach me how to live. So I think he wanted to be a kid forever mm-hmm. sort of thing. And that, there was something really, uh, really nice in that. I, I saw 
footage of his performances, and he was deliberate on stage. He'd be thinking, he'd been wanting to come up with something to get put some entertainment in here, but on the other hand, he would saunter across the stage just to move the mic stand or something. Okay, I'm moving a mic stand now, or whatever it is. What was the first time you ever bled on stage? That would have been the, the second Stooges show. It was sort of my first stage dive, too. We were opening for Mothers of Invention at the ballroom. And uh, I was just at this point, I was like, if this group is going to survive, we have to do something every show to make sure not, nobody forgets us. And so uh, I didn't feel the full connection was being made. And there were a couple of very healthy girls who were laying on their backs right at, in front of the stage watching the thing. And I thought, well, I'm just going to fall on top of them. That Maybe that'll be exciting. And I, so I did that, and they separated, and I hit my teeth. I used to have these protuberant front teeth i hit them on the on the floor and i chipped one and uh, one went through my my you know i caught a little cut in my lip and started to bleed a little so that was that was the first time do you think if you were not in a band mm -hmm. and not performing you would still in regular life put yourself in situations where you would end up bloody or beaten that's interesting i don't generally I, ha, I don't have a very long history of being beaten by others uh, just a couple of times so it's mostly you know it's mostly my own doing probably i would say if only because uh, my mother used to my mother told me that i think and i remembered by the time i was six i already had 12 or 15 stitches in my chin from running and falling over head first, headlong, that sort of thing. So uh, so maybe that was just there in my fate, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't bled in, uh, well, yeah, I had one on the last tour. I tripped over <laughs> something. <laughs> I bleed a lot less these days. But, but uh, it, yeah, has, yeah, it, yeah. has it ever been intentional or it's always been accidental? It has been, it, there was a long period of time when I was just very uncomfortable with the relationship with the audience. It would be with, if the relationship wasn't good and I had to keep going or I, you know, here I am in the wrong town or the wrong place or whatever. And I would just kind of scratch, you know, and I wasn't scratching to make blood. I was just scratching. You know, so that became kind of a something that was present on and off for a long time that had to do with my nerves. Understand. Um, I don't have those problems anymore. Uh, but um, other times, like there was a fairly famous time when uh, I got a big gash in Max's Kansas City. And that was just I was on top of a table trying to get a rise out of a... Look, you play Max's Kansas City at that time, it had become so celebrated that they put in rock shows. And if you were someone like us, like the Stooges at the time, the entire audience, it seemed, they were all critics. Mm -hmm. 
and they all had glasses on, and I could see the stage lights reflected in their glasses. They're all just kind of staring at us, right? They give you nothing back. And so I got on top of a, a cocktail table to sing, trying to push things a little bit, and the table, I lost the balance of the table. The table went over, and I got cut on the stem of a broken margarita glass, but it was an accident. I didn't roll around in glass or anything. It was just an accident. One thing about me, if I get hurt or if I get cold or if I'm in the rain or whatever it is, I'm not going to stop. Mm-hmm. I don't do that. I'm, I'm not going to go, sorry. Nah. So, you know, I just keep going. In that case, I kept going, and yeah. and and there there was blood was dripping. Okay, yeah. but I'm, okay. Uh, wait a minute, ladies and gentlemen. While I take care, of, no, I'm no. doing the show. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you're James Brown. <laughs> the show there you goes go. on. I'm it's ja- like it's I think I'm James time. Brown. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the spirit of James Brown yes. has crept into my body. Yes, I understand. An English guy came, uh, who had the Sir, God, Lord, somebody. He was a Lord. <laughs> who, yeah, he had this show, South Bank show, a big arts show there. And he, he came to Miami to interview me. And he said, "Well, obviously you are possessed." <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. So there you go. You know, we're gonna pause for a quick break, and then we'll be back with Rick Rubin and Iggy Pop. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. We're back with more from Rick Rubin's conversation with Iggy Pop. We talked a little bit about your relationship to music earlier. Would you say that music is different for you than other forms of art, or can you be as taken and moved by all kinds of great art? Painting is close. Painting, because it doesn't move, and it gives me more of a chance to go in. But it's not mo- not in the same, does not have the same drama for me or the same raw excitement, but it does have a powerful, powerful impact. And it can be anything from a, a primitive to a Francis Bacon to a, somebody contemporary even. Mm-hmm. Movies, wish there was something great since the French New Wave, frankly, you know, less and less so with the films, I would say, you know, but I'm still interested. Mm-hmm. The one thing with the movies, what I used to do when I'd have trouble in my career, I would go to see a hero. So uh, I remember when I was between the first edition of the Stooges had fallen apart and I was trying to restart, do the second edition that would do the Raw Power. And I was in New York at that time when I eventually I hooked up. But in the meantime, I wanted to see Clint Eastwood. So I went to Times Square and I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it was just reassuring to watch a guy that could get the job done. And uh, years later, here in L.A., I was down and out, and I, I spent a few of my last dollars to see, uh, gosh, it was the, again, it was Clint's, one of Clint's movies where uh, kind of a neo-Nazi gang has infiltrated the San Francisco Police Department. I can't remember the name of that one. And then later, there was another time, there was an Elvis movie on, and I walked, I was back at the trailer and uh, with my parents, I was maybe in the early 20s and between between contracts, and I walked into town to see Harum Scarum, <laughs> which is a terrible movie where he's dressed up in he's dressed up like MC Hammer <laughs> before <laughs> MC Hammer and singing these crappy songs, but it was Elvis, you know. Yeah. So that there's something about that that I I like, you know. How do you find new music? I look in the. The smaller, the main source would be the smaller reviews in daily papers. Mm-hmm. The Guardian in England has a really, they, they're very thorough about all sorts of stuff. It'll be mentioned or reviewed in a short, a short way that's almost just like news uh, that it exists. And I listen to a lot of that. And then gig guides. I go through the gig guides and if I like the name of the band, like I went through the gig guide of a couple of years ago and there was this band, it was uh, in London, some playground and it's Joe and the Shit Boys. And I said, well, that sounds cool. Who the fuck is, who are these people? And you know what? I listened to their 
music. They're a, a simple but effective, well, they play well together, really cleverly thought out punk band. But it turns out at the time they build themselves as a vegan queer punk from the Faroe Islands, right? So I just liked them and listened to their music. They have like songs like Macho Man, Randy Savage, Macho Man, Randy Savage, right? And it's, it's entertaining and clever and they have a lot of good songs. So there was another one I found that way. There's a band, uh, it's basically two guys. I think they're probably Island Heritage in England called Bob Villain. V-Y-L-A-N. And uh, they've got some smashing good numbers. And that's more like a little more social protest. All this, the shit boys are social too. But I listen to everything. I listen to everything. I have a radio show on the BBC. And I, I have to come up with two hours, 40 weeks a year. So you come up, it's 1,200 songs. I try not to repeat. Yeah. So I listen to a lot of new stuff. And I, I like it pretty wide selection and then sometimes if you use spotify then it leads you sometimes the algorithm is right well i Uh do like this other thing you thought i would like you know Uh so i do it like that and sometimes uh i'll go to the music papers too Uh you know but they tend to cluster around something that has to do with their advertisers or their backers or their particular thing so it's not maybe not as fruitful for me but i go there oh and friends and friends oh great yeah i have sources you know? and they send you stuff all the time yep. check uh, this out I check ask. this out can you send me more of that like yeah, yeah you have a couple people in france who send me yeah. i especially like the francophone afro beat stuff is killer and you you, you need somebody french to steer you with that have you ever used the, um, what's the name of that? It's a French app, Radio Whoa, 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 Whoa? No, I don't know Radio Whoa, 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 Whoa. You'd like that. It's not new music, but it's really cool. It's a streaming service that shows you a, a map of the world, a globe. And you can pick any country in the world. Yeah. And any decade. And it'll play music as if it's the radio playing in that country, like Morocco, 1950. What does that sound like? It's so cool. (laughs) You'll love Uh, it. Thank you. Just fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like radio. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to love it. Wow, cool. Tell me about the the Electra album covers. So I feel like those album covers are some of the best album covers in the history of rock music. Mm. How did it happen? Well, the first one that we did was a guy named Joel Brodsky, and uh, the first Stooges album was uh, done at his studio, and he had done the Doors albums. So the the guy directing the art at Elektra was also the general manager. They used to double up in those days. Well, get Brodsky to do it, but do something a little like the Doors, you know. So I had ten, got 10 stitches that day back to the blood because I was like, oh, this is, I don't want to be just like the doors. This is going to be too boring. So how about there, there are outtakes from that session that are around where the, the Stooges are all 
crouching on the floor as I fly through the air over them. <laughs> and, and he had a concrete floor, and I, <laughs> so we had to stop the session. Of, they stitched me up and brought me back, and we continued later in the afternoon. But uh, that was that was how that one was done. Uh, the Funhouse cover, that is mainly the my part, and the background of that is the that is the floor of the Whiskey a Go Go in front of the stage, and we played it the whiskey, as bands often do when you're fledgling, you go somewhere to record, and then the company says, yeah, how about a couple of dates to defray our expenses? You know, you play, we'll take the money. You know, so we played the L.A. and San Francisco, and at the whiskey, I was sort of writhing around on the floor trying to get some action going. And there was a, a photographer there who was Ed Cariff, a very groovy young guy, you know, and uh, he shot the group in the studio and also at the whiskey and then collaged the things really nicely, I thought. So beautiful. You know? And gatefolds, you know, for just beautiful, beautiful art. Yeah. That's what I thought. It was really, really nice, and uh, we were all, we were all young and fresh and excited to do it. You know, we all had a certain. With the band had a, a certain aesthetic. You could see it. Uh, that carried on later. We wore. We never really went deep into stage costumes. We stayed. It was like a, a certain area of normal clothes, but not quite normal. Mm-hmm. Cut a certain way. So when we started, you were telling the story. I, we, we ended up going back to talking about the Stooges. But when we started, the first thing we were talking about was how you met David. And you said that you joined the station to station to tour. Tell me how it worked out that you guys started working together. And how did it work out that the Stooges stopped and you started doing solo? Yeah, well, basically, after meeting him and uh, Tony DeFries in Maxis, Kansas City, uh, it, it was agreed that we'd go to England and make a record, but they really just wanted me to make the record. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Stooges. I talked them into the first one guy and then let's get the Stooges. David offered to produce the record. I think that's what he really wanted to do. And I declined on the grounds that I already had a vision for what the band needed to do at this time, which I did, and what I wanted to make. And uh, I'm glad I did, because when I got him later to work with me, his skills had taken a big jump. So around that same time when I declined the Stooges thing, he cut a single with Matahupo, and the way that works is he could write a better song than they could, so they put out all the young dudes, And then a guy like that who's moving right along in his career, you get the experience, he's going to be done with you and wants to go do something else. So they he got them up to a certain point, and then they had to kind of carry on, Mm -hmm. write another, all the young dudes, or forget it. So that was difficult for them. Uh, It wouldn't have been good for us. So we did that. And uh, there was Raw Power was actually finished before Ziggy Stardust was, but uh, they decided to put out Ziggy Stardust first. And uh, through various frustrations and the fact that even though it's a great record, it's not commercial in that way in those times, Raw Power kind of 
fizzled out, the band fizzled out, everything fizzled out, I fizzled out. Fast forward, there was a f- wonderful man named Freddie Sessler who was an extremely close friend and confidant of Keith Richards. And Freddie looked and sounded like Chico Marx, and he was a survivor of Auschwitz. He had the stamp right on his arm. And he was a crazy rock and roll fan. Hey, talk like this, you know. <laughs> hey, I like what you're doing. I'm going to come and see you. And Freddie was a guy who um, knew how to get out of any jail. Nobody really knew why. And he also had a lot of a certain substance that was always pure from the from the pharmaceutical companies. So I got caught shoplifting once apples and cheese in the Mayfair market in Beverly Hills. And Freddie bailed me out of jail. And he said, hey, hey, listen, you know, David wants to see you. I want to go down to San Diego where his tour started. He he wants to see you. And uh, it would be great. And I said, oh, God, I don't want to bother him. You know, he said, no, 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 it's going to be great. So he put us on the phone. And uh, David said, I, I, I've got a track that would be good for you. I think we could build something around that. Why don't you come down and listen to it? So I had nothing else going on, and uh, I liked what he was doing at the time. That was Station to Station. Well, that's a great record, man. Cut it Cherokee in L.A. Uh-huh. So I went down there and uh, listened to what became Sister Midnight, listened to the backing track. So we started from there. He said, look. If you come across with us on this tour, by the time we get uh, done with Europe, we can make a record. So it was common, and it still is. We worked under something called a production contract, which, you know, generally the way that works is when when a star becomes hot, it's easy for them to their management to go to the record company they're with and say how much will you give us for our star to produce something on this other artist through our own company and of course the the parent company is going to doesn't want the artist the star talking to any other company they want yeah sure we'll help you out with anything you want to do yeah 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 so that's the he i was signed to bule brothers for three albums and they sold that to rca and so we we started work on it basically as we went across America, and uh, he was traveling by car. It's the same car and driver that is in the Man That Fell to Earth wow. movie. Uh, Tony Massia, it's a guy's name. Tony was a wonderful man. He had done some time in Sing Sing for Manslaughter, and uh, he was out. He's just a great guy from the Bronx, and. Uh, he was the the driver minder, and uh, we would go by night in his car from city to city with one of these little plastic record players in the back, and uh, it was him and me and Tony and his uh, Coco Schwab, his PA, and uh, he was always had somebody sourcing him the newest interesting records from. America and Europe. So the three that were in heavy rotation, actually, the, yeah, on that was um, Kraftwerk Radioactivity, 
the first Ramones album and the Tom Waits album with Copper Penny on it. Wow. That early one. Yeah. Those three. I listen to those a lot. And um, the Kraftwerk made the biggest influence uh, on what we were about to do. And then at the end of it, we went in Arrow V and just started writing, sort of ping-ponging back and forth. That was creative and odd, mm -hmm. the whole thing. And, you know, China Girl was probably the best lyric I came up with on that. I was having an affair with a, somebody Vietnamese around the studio, but also the Chinese government was beginning to allow small Chinese official government shops were cropping up at that time around Europe where they sold Chinese rugs, mm. little figurines, the little red book, you know, all that sort of thing. And I thought, this is a coming culture. And so I was trying to sing a song about the two cultures meeting. And I sang this, the line, I'll give you television, you know, which is, but um, later Bad Company was recording. They came in to start their record and uh, while we were ending ours and they heard me singing, I'll give you television through the window and they started mocking that. <laughs> you know, that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I did well with I'll give you television. <laughs> yeah. you know, an interesting, yeah, lyric. So uh, that was that one. And uh, Brian Eno visited there at that time to start the process that was going to lead to Low. Mm -hmm. And both albums were done between Aravie in France and Music Box in Munich and then Hansa in Berlin. But um, that was that. And then the, we did the tour after that where he played in the band. And, and uh, immediately at the end of the tour... We went right back in, and the lust for life was more. He'd had enough of the whole thing, so we sat down and wrote. The, the whole thing was written in about two days. Wow. And it's literally, yeah, literally, okay, here's one. I'm rewriting. And I was recording them as I had on the first. I record his ideas on a Philips Monoral cassette machine. Weighed about ten pounds and uh, cost like twenty five bucks, you know. And uh, I'd record the ideas and then uh, come up with lyrics or a concept. And uh, that one went faster in the studio. We were about two weeks, kaboom, 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 including mixing. It, it seems like you figured out the—I wouldn't call it a formula—but you found a way to work together, and you can—you were continuing yeah. that process, so you didn't have to. There was less figuring it out and more just doing it. Exactly, and and there was also, you know, there was a contractual side to it. He had—he would get a certain amount of money to deliver album two, mm -hmm. and uh, I needed to have album two, <laughs> and then eventually for album three, we just did a live. You know, everybody, he wanted to go his way. I wanted to go mine. And that, as is very normal mm -hmm. and happens, you know. Did you guys remain friends for the rest of his, his life? Yeah, yeah. And we've, you know, we, he would call and come and see this. What about that and everything? And we'd go out and, you know, or he'd bring, uh, he brought Keith Richard to my gig, which was a thrill for me. And I got to know Keith. And then he brought Mick Jagger to one of my gigs and sat backstage and the singer's wearing no shirt he's wearing no shirt <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, blah, 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 you know, and, and uh, stuff like that. And then eventually we did one more album together about eight years later called Blah, 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 because he had heard, I played him some demos. We were swapping demos up at his digs at the Carlisle Hotel, and I had uh, I had demoed some stuff with Steve Jones, you know, a little, mm-hmm. little home studio in L.A., and Steve was just newly sober and uh, interested in playing in ways he hadn't before, and I was interested in singing Morna Baritone, so I, I had three or four good demos for Steve, and... And David heard those, and well, we could make that. We could make a record out of that. And he wanted, he wanted to do it in Switzerland because uh, he had a residency requirement at that time. Mm-hmm. Steve couldn't leave the U.S. at that time. He didn't have the right visa together. So mm-hmm. we used Steve's tracks, and Steve plays on the album just by use of the tracks. And it's an 808 drum machine, and uh, Kevin Armstrong also on guitar. And uh, that was that was interesting. It was we recorded at Montreux, that studio where everybody goes, mm-hmm. you know. And then uh, we stayed quite friendly and stayed in touch up through up till about the beginning of the '90s. And then at some point, both people were on different trips and different wavelengths. But um, the last time I spoke to him, he he called me up. I had gone to Miami, he called me up in 2002 or three, and uh, he was interested in signing me. He was going to start a new label. He didn't didn't eventually at, at Columbia, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to stay where I was, so I just stayed where I was. He talked to me about, he curated something called Meltdown. At one time, one year in London, the Meltdown Festival, and I ended up not doing it because I was busy doing other things. So it was it was a cordial, yeah. a cordial call. After this quick break, we'll be back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Iggy Pop. BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California. And starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma. 
delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. We're back with Rick Rubin and Iggy Pop. How long have you lived in Miami? Since the end of 98, so it's been about 24 years now. How has Miami changed over that period of time? Oh, well, what used to be was a large open space underpopulated, which was wonderful at the time. And uh, it drew a lot of quirky people, uh, which was just perfect for me, (laughs) you know. For instance, when I got there, there was a street in Miami Beach. It was 11th Street in between Collins and Washington. There was a storefront, and Luke Skywalker from Two Life Crew had had Luke Records there, and that was the headquarters. And there was a large piece of what they call drywall yeah. in the front window, this picture window of a small, you know, a small shop window. And it was spray-painted, a picture of a brown beauty in a tiny bikini with totally impossible curves, right? Seated, smiling at you under a palm tree with giant coconuts and then Luke Records, you know? So there's things like that. Yeah. And uh, a lot of open space and breezes and a lot of rundown old buildings that had been the great hotels of the 50s and originally when i was there i i got a condo in one of those i bought it from a character named jonathan shaw which is son of artie shaw and a great tattoo artist and a man's man a two-fisted ride your motorcycle to rio de janeiro you know man man kind of a guy and uh, I bought it from him for 40 grand. And it had a hot plate. It was like an SRO, like an old man's single room occupancy yeah. apartment, but right there with a killer view of the beach, you right. know, and the beach. And yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, 
I went from there. I got, bought a little house. I'd never, I'd never done that for myself before. Mm. And I went there with no manager, no roadie, no minder, just all alone. Mm -hmm. And uh, bought a little, what they call a Venetian revival house. It's like a house you'd see in Corsica or something with the barrel vault right. tiles and the, the ceiling like with the, with the vaulting and the peaks and nice tile work. And uh, I was able to, I was calm enough, I was able to quit smoking. Great. You know, things things that are very hard to do in New York City. And uh, I, I had never bought my own car. So I called a car dealership and they started to ask me these questions. You know, like, well, what is your job and who's the, the employer number and all this? And I was like, oh, this is not fun. So I hung up and I looked in the classifieds and I saw... $5,000, cherry red Cadillac DeVille convertible, 1967. Perfect. I said, that sounds like me. And, you know, I go to the guy's house, and, you know, he's like this big, hairy guy who, you know, could be like a motorcycle cop or a, a pilot or something. And, and I, I said, well, this is, car is beautiful. I said, how does she run? And he dangled the keys in front of me, and he said... She's ready to go to California right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and this is cool, you know. So I, I bought that car and I drove that all around Miami and Miami Beach for for years. And uh, now the big money's there. So they're getting permits they've built up. There's more shade, less light, mm. more wind tunnels, less breeze, mm. like hard to park more dangerous it was always dangerous it's an edgy place you know but uh so that, that's just what it is but it's still for america there's a certain ease about the life there do you ever think about moving close by but not in miami just like you know an hour away in any direction and it's yeah more like what it used to be probably <laughs> i have a place an hour away by plane mm -hmm. i'm in the the boondocks there nice. i love that you know i don't know if i'd move to rural florida or not because because there is no more rural florida left really mm -hmm. everywhere that's nice that's rural they've built up and built over it's it's pretty bad you'd have to move to the everglades mm -hmm. pretty much you know there were still people some people in the last hurricane that still had a couple of little idyllic communities there and they lost them. It's Florida is a very fast growing state, especially since, since Donald Trump changed the tax deduction laws. There's no deduction for state tax. So a lot of people from California and from New York to escape that and also to from New York to a lot of people came during COVID because these were people who had some wealth, but suddenly they didn't want to take the elevator anymore. Yeah. I understand that, you yeah. know. So you could come to Florida and get a little patch of land with with your home. It's it's growing. It's also more of an outdoor culture, I imagine. You spend much more time outside there than in New York. Yes, that's why I went there, and uh, I had visited in the seventies. 
and I saw houses where the inside was out and the outside was in. There were lizards in the house. I loved that. <laughs> there are lizards in the house. They come and go, you know. Yeah. So I wanted, I told the realtor, I want to see something like that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. House yeah. with lizards, please. Yes. Yeah, and I did. I got a house with lizards. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever imagine living back in Detroit, or would that not be a thing you would do? I would if I didn't know anybody and nobody knew me. <laughs> That's what I'd say. But because of who I was a long time ago, what I went through, and whatever vestiges of that might still be there, I would not, mm -hmm. you know. I would not, but otherwise I would because Michigan people are cool. Yeah. Michigan people are really great people, and uh, it's probably very inexpensive to live well, you know, and there's still, there's still space. Do you think of Detroit as home, or do you think of Miami as home? Miami. Yeah, yeah that's my home, and that's that. Cool. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could talk for probably another six hours, so maybe we do this again soon. Okay, cool. But I love talking to you, and I love learning about music, talking, talking to you. It's great. All right. Cool. Hey, this was real nice, eh? Amazing. See you soon. Thanks again to Iggy Pop. You can hear all of our favorite Iggy and Stooges songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Broken Record Podcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Holiday, and Eric Sandler. Our editor is Sophie Crane. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music is by Kenny Beats, and I'm Justin Wishman. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Oh, okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Did you catch season three of This Is Digital? Season three of This Is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of J.D. Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on season three of This Is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.